On the Empire Podcast this week, all rise to hell Lady Meryl of Streep. Yes, arguably the finest actress in the history of history will be in the pod booth, as is a dazzling young pretender to her throne, the wonderful Alicia Vikander. All that and much more on the Only Movie Podcast, a Google dick poop yesterday, and believe me, you do not want to go there. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, brought to you in association with Squarespace. How's that for a segue? The all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy for you to build your own professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store. If you want to sign up, and we heartily recommend that you do, go to squarespace.com and use the code EMPIRE, E-M-P-I-R-E, to get a free trial, nearly misspelled my own magazine's name there, and 10% off your first purchase on all new accounts. This week, due to set visits and illness, I'm joined by just two colleagues of such lethal cunning, but what colleagues they are and what lethal cunning they have. First up is our art house guru, a man whom Academy President Cheryl Boone Isaacs would surely refer to as... <laughs> don't don't <laughs> what I don't want to hear this I'll what? just call you Phil DeSemlin then shall oh, I oh okay thanks Phil DeSemlin oh. it's oh. Phil DeSemlin God. hello Phil hi Chris you alright very good next up is uh, Empire Online's editor-in-chief is that your name is that your title it's hard to say from it's one hard to, to the tell. next it's hard to tell uh, Empire Online's editor-in-chief uh, whom Cheryl Boone Isaacs would surely call James Poopy Pants uh, I mean James Dyer hello sir how are you hello it's been a while it has been a while. It has. I, I don't remember. When was the last time I did this? I think I was talking about orc genitalia on the uh, on the Hobbits. And you special. wonder why it's been a while. Yeah, and I wasn't invited back. Yeah. We weren't even talking about orcs at this time. No. Just sort of... We're going to have just one question from the readers this week. Uh, just one question. This is from at Caroline Cedar, uh, who sent it in via Twitter. Caroline, I hope I'm pronouncing both of your names right. She asks, if you could only watch one director's filmography for the rest of your life, whose would you pick? David Finch's films. He's done some good films. I don't know if I'd want to sit in a room watching Aliens three alien three over and over again maybe not david fincher it's a balance isn't it we were talking about this in the office my brother made the good point he'd want someone with a very hefty filmography so you could strap all their dvds and make a raft from them well, this is what i was island. thinking and i had a look at this and arguably the most prolific director is uh, gilbert anderson who did the bronco billy films apparently he's done 466 <laughs> films yes but then you'd be watching f- how many films it's 466 films admittedly not all of them are feature length Okay. Uh, that, that, I mean, about 70 of those are Bronco Billy films, so frankly, you'd go insane, I think, before you'd even get halfway through that. They're probably on celluloid. You probably don't have those on DVD, mm. and you'd need, you'd need a projector, and it's going to be tricky. We, I, I think, mm. I think well, we, have, we have somehow added a desert island element to this question mm. that did not exist. Uh, but that's, that's kind of fun. You know, we were on a desert island somehow, something's gone terribly wrong, and we're on there with somehow working Blu-ray player at TV and a, and a complete collection of only one director's films. Seems a bit strange to me, but nevertheless. Uh, no, I wouldn't go for Gilbert Anderson. No, you, no because... You think there's only so much Bronco Billy a person can take? No, you would snap a Blu-ray in half and, and just jab it into your neck after a while, wouldn't you? It just it, that, would be, that would be a way to go, wouldn't it? So who would you go for? Uh, I would go for just... someone who has a lot of films, so you don't get bored, and has quality all the way through those films. Um... You couldn't go for Charles Lawton or someone like that who only has one film. So that, that kind of brings around the usual suspects, doesn't it, really? Uh, I don't, by that, I don't mean Brian Singer. I mean, you know, Spielberg and Hitchcock and Kubrick and, and people like that. John Carpenter, for me, you know. Mm. Mm. George Romero, would that be... Uh, that'd be very interesting filmography. But, you know, then you get... You know, the thing about, you know, the likes of even Spielberg, the likes of, uh, you know, Hitchcock. Even Hitchcock had some stinkers towards the end of his career. You know, Carpenter... Once Prince of Darkness comes in 1987, it's stinker after stinker. So do you really want to sit there and watch everyone, you know, all the bad films over and over again? I don't know. I think you do, because you, then you've got, you've got great films and you've got guilty pleasures as well. So you can mix them up. You'd want someone that isn't... He's got some cheery ones in the mix. I'm not sure you'd want to necessarily love Kubrick. He's one of my favourite directors, but I'm not sure you just want to watch Kubrick films or True. Scorsese films, for instance, True. over and over again. I might throw in Powell and Pressburger. Mm-hmm. Who always uplifting? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Billy Wilder, who has a bit of both. Yeah. Or Howard Hawks, who crossed famously sort of spanned all genres. So you've mm-hmm. got something for all occasions. Although, how many different occasions you might encounter on a desert island on your own? I'm not sure. That's, uh, that's gentlemen for blondes, birthday, Christmas. I don't know. Mm. That's not a bad shout. Yeah. Probably maybe Howard Hawks. Mm. One of those guys. Because I'd love to watch the movies of uh, Sucker Abraham Sucker. Mm. But that's essentially only a few films, and then they all went their separate ways. And then you get into David Sucker's filmography, which is generally terrible, and uh, you're kind of, what do I do? What do I do? 
So I'm going to bite the bullet, go controversial. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I probably, I probably watch John Carpenter's filmography. Yeah, really? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I think so. There's enough grey films in there. Small but perfectly formed. I would have to go with James Cameron just because I can't live without Aliens. You're right. Terminator, Aliens, yeah, everything you need. Yeah, it means watching Titanic over and over again. I could do that. You could do that. Yeah. Okay. Goes to the abyss. Yeah. Stephen Summers. Stephen Summers. There it is. There it is. Done. <laughs> Done. Deep Rising. The Mummy. The Mummy Returns. Say no more, Chris. Odd Thomas. Literally say no more. It's just the greats just line up one after the other. Stephen Summers. And if if unavailable, if wet, Brett Ratner. Done. <sighs> Done deal. Deep Rising ends on a desert island, let's not forget, and not in a good way. Now what? No, I think they could have handled it. They could have handled it. <laughs> if you wish, for whatever reason, I don't know why you would want to, but if you want to have your question read out on the Emperor podcast, uh, do send them in via the following uh, mediums. Is that right? That's probably right. Via the following mediums, uh, you can send them in via Twitter, at Empire Magazine is our name, and use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Uh, you can send it in via Facebook, where we are, Empire Magazine, and you can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. Make them good, and then hopefully we'll read them out on the podcast. Okay, time now for our first guest, with uh, three Oscars under her belt, plus a squillion nominations, including another one yesterday for Into the Woods. Uh, Meryl Streep can justifiably claim to be the greatest actress of all time. She wouldn't do that, of course, she's far too modest, but we'll make that claim for her. She can currently be seen singing and rapping in Into the Woods and when she came to London recently to talk to Phil and Ali Plum that's exactly what they talked about Just to offer a bit of context this interview is for the film Into the Woods which is in cinemas now and we reviewed on the podcast last week Meryl is in the middle of a sentence when we start recording. She's talking about Russell Crowe's comments about actresses looking to play younger roles, and she's fighting Russ's corner on that one. Um, and the chinking sound you can hear is Meryl stirring her cup of builder's tea. I, I think he was speaking about himself, actually, that he was referring to ageism in, in Hollywood and how you, you know, you have to bring what you can bring. And... and what your specific wealth of uh, talent, understanding, knowledge is to whatever stage of life you currently occupy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Sandra Bullock is 50, but no one would say that she shouldn't have played that part in Gravity Mm -hmm. because because it seemed fine. (laughs) But uh, 25 years ago, if you had said to the head of a studio, we're going to cast a 50-year-old woman in this part, they'd mm. say, you go ahead and do it. I'm not going to make the movie. You Isn't know? the implication of what he's saying that there are roles that women are turning down because of vanity, almost, or that they, they're aspiring to romantic leads and they don't want to play? I think he was talking about himself. And so what's been extrapolated is that it sounds like he's talking about women who want to be younger, but he was talking about himself, saying, why, why would I try to play a 28-year-old man. He said, I'm not 28 years old anymore. Mm. I'm playing the, the, the people that I'm, I can be now, you know? Yeah. And I think that, so what, that Aronofsky film? Noah, I think, so he plays a patriarch now. So he's not trying to be, I think he was talking about Gladiator. Somebody was asking him an idiotic question, why don't you do more Gladiator movies, you know? <laughs> and he said, well, it's stupid, I can't do that. Just like a woman shouldn't, you know, want to be 21. But what's gone around the world is the ancillary part of his answer. But he was really talking about himself like we all do. Certainly what I do. (laughs) My first question is about me, uh, which is in Into the Woods, you finally gave me the opportunity to say that I've seen Meryl Streep rap. (laughs) Thank you so much for making that happen. It was on my bucket list. People were waiting for it. They were waiting. (laughs) Who are your rap heroes, Meryl? I'm not actually, see, the misogyny in rap is really a problem for me. But sometimes work is less of that. He hates everybody. He's an equal opportunity. Uh, Misanthrope. (laughs) It's true he gave you a piece of sheet music he wrote for the film, and he wrote... Yes, he did. It rhymes with dark. Um, We can say it. Don't fuck it up on the piece. Yeah. No, it was much more tender than that. It was my first meeting with him, and he had written a song for me for the film, and I was invited to his house to hear it performed by him. That's how I was going to learn this, because he doesn't have a soprano voice, but 
he wanted to convey its meaning, the way he sang it. And it was extremely moving and an amazing afternoon. Rob Marshall and I went over there. And um, at the end, he handed me the sheet music, and I, with my little trembling hand, I said, I really am embarrassed to ask you, but would you autograph it? And he said, I'd be glad to. And he wrote, don't fuck it up, Steve. <laughs> oh, man. Was, I adore him. Was that for She'll Be Back? That She'll Be Back. We and should... She'll Be on the DVD is what it should be named. Yeah, the full title. <laughs> it's a damn shame. No, no, no. It was really right. It just uh, stopped motion. You know, movies just really have a different sort of – people are ahead in, mm-hmm. in movies. You can do things in the theater – that uh, you can stop and take a, a little way station on the way, but mm-hmm. a movie has its own imperative and its own momentum, and you, you you can't get in the way of it modestly. I think I do it well, but it's just it got in the way of the progress of the second half of the film. Yes, this is a film that does that wonderfully mischievous thing of going, well, everything's fine <laughs> halfway through, and then also, well, in the words of Sondheim, fuck you. Yeah. Um, to use that word yeah. how, how did it feel to kind of there is a little bit of a trapping the audience is that is that fun knowing that you're kind of you're pulling the rug from under them what an interesting way to look at it i i don't think we're pulling the rug out from under them as much as we're doing honor to the piece itself so we're we're telling the truth <laughs> and that's what you really ultimately want to do as an artist that's really the whole job and to do this, as they do in schools across America, just the first half, the happy ending, <laughs> is not really actually <laughs> serving that sensibility that Sondheim brings. And it's, um, it's, it's real. Mm. Shit happens. Bad stuff happens. That was the original tagline, I think. <laughs> children are not unaware of it. Kids have loved this film. I mean, when you think how much box office was driven by these little half-price tickets. <laughs> it's sort of astonishing that it, it was as successful. I read an amazing statistic that I think 600,000 people have performed this musical on stages around the world. Mm-hmm. My math is terrible, and I can't remember exactly how many cast members there are in it, but there must be a good eighty or 90,000 witches out there <laughs> wow. you, for whom you're now a new figurehead, I guess. <laughs> Have you, do you have people, are you expecting people to sort of come and want to engage with you about this that have played the part as well? That's such an interesting question. I wonder how many Hamlets there have been over the centuries. How many Lady Macbeths? How many Three Sisters? How many? It's just like with a great piece of literature or movie, there are an infinite number of ways to interpret it. And there will be many more, probably better witches. <laughs> In high schools across America, I have no doubt. But a story that's this complex and nuanced and funny and thrilling musically deserves a a lot of different voices telling it. And that's the good thing about theater is that it gets to morph and in the hands of different casts. Was an appeal to taking this role or becoming part of this project the opportunity to screw over Emily Blunt's character just one more time. I live for it. Yeah. I, I just haven't had enough of it. <laughs> I'm looking for another piece if you think of anything. Well, I'll get, I'll, I'll get back. All about Eve. Revenge wears... Boom. Boom. Ooh, yes. <laughs> Done. <laughs> now there's an idea. Revenge wears Prada's been published. What's that? Revenge wears Prada. <laughs> follow up to Devil Wears Prada. Oh, yeah. Um, that'd make a great musical, wouldn't it? Potentially, or stage mm-hmm. play. Mm. It's only as good as the music. When, when you performed... First, in front of Sondheim, just how scared were you? Or were you just on another plane? I was scared. Excited and scared. <laughs> to quote him. I was both mm. excited and scared. I mean, I really do admire him. I, I think he's a singular figure in the 20th century cultural history. Certainly the American musical, he rewrote the, the landscape of that um, form and... Uh, so yes, I was very nervous, <laughs> but I, he, he never stopped working. That was the thing. He's, what, 82 something, or, I don't know. But he was alive to the process, even as we were recording with this whole orchestra in the mm. um, thing. And 
even he said, you know, be free. So we could, even though we pre-recorded and we sang to the pre-record on set, we were always recording live. We always had mics. So they had the option of, so the, the rap, for instance, mm. was live. And they had the, the, um, th they had the option of always using that. Mm. And that was with his, um, th that was his request that it be living. And we were working on it all the time. That's cool. He's very cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to ask you about a project you've got coming up, which kind of connects with this. Has this movie, in perfecting all these really difficult songs, made it harder to play Florence Jenkins when that movie comes about, who is, I should point out, a notoriously bad singer? I think I'll be able to do that well. <laughs> <laughs> That's opera. I can really fuck opera up. But um, she's almost good. And I sort of feel that about my own operatic singing. So I think the woman has met the role in this case. <laughs> I love the idea of uh, your, your director, Stephen Frears, going, that's a little too good. <laughs> can, we, can we tone down the goodness? <laughs> just, just a smidge. I just feel sorry for Stephen Frears because he's got to edit it and he's got to listen to it for three or four months after he's going to be closed up in a room airless windowless with that in his in the cans oh my god poor I, guy i also like the idea of you going back for adr just so you can just do it even worse <laughs> oh do it even worse could you just really could you just mispronounce that french word entirely thanks but you know the thing about her was it wasn't it was equal parts how far off the rails she got on some of the arpeggios, the arabesques of the... But it was also the great joy she took in doing it and how much she loved music and that she was conveying that as well. That was sort of an irresistible combination. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. This is a woman who took two inheritances, one from her mother and one from her father, and blasted it all on being the world's worst singer and getting people to pay to come and watch how bad she was without realizing she was bad. He also underwrote Toscanini's Carnegie Hall seasons every year. She generously gave uh, money to sort of that's why there was Carnegie Hall. Yeah. And yes, two months before she died, her boyfriend did buy her a concert there and she made her debut and died two months later but at that performance they turned 2,000 people away in the wow. street and Tallulah Bankhead was there and Noel Coward and the glitterati of New York because there was something it wasn't just nobody would line up just for bad singing it was the other thing it's the other thing it's the human yearning to to meet music wherever music lives mm. you know it lives and you know hilarity ensues but also joy there's joy in it there's something else that's what i'm going to find out i'm there's something else to why people wanted to see mm. her can i just on a completely different note I, I one of my favorite films of all time is the deer hunter and one of my favorite oh. sequences within that is the, is the wedding sequence oh which I believe you shot over five days in, in, in a church in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes, uh-huh. Um, actual Russian extras, and it was very method in the way that it was yeah. prepared, and people were actually drinking alcohol. Um, that stays with you for, for forever, I'd imagine. What's your most sort of strongest memory of those five days? How much fun it was. How much fun it was. Because we learned all these dances. and <laughs> I mean, I have a job where you, you go and you're asked to, you know, <clears throat> almost kiss Robert De Niro and dance with Chris Walken all night. I mean, what, what, who couldn't want to do that? It was really joyous. But the rest of that film was very hard to, to watch when, you know, I wasn't in any of those parts and I was just in the stateside part. When I went to the theater and saw the film, it just killed me. I, I thought, oh, my God, what they put them through. I think De Niro almost died when yeah. they dragged him from that helicopter over that river. Yeah. He really did almost die. Have you revisited it in the, in the, in the recent past? No, I haven't. I, I wonder how it 
holds up. I don't. I don't know. Mm. Seems so of a particular time, but maybe, maybe it has some resonance now. Jumping back into the woods, just very briefly, we have in our big feature in the magazine uh, on the making of Into the Woods the story of how Emily Blunt, a uh, three month uh, into her pregnancy, put her hand out and saved you as you fell off a table. Is the way she described it as saving your life. How did it feel from your perspective, tripping up over your dress on a table in a bakery? No, no, no. Who tripped me? Oh no! So that she could have the story. Oh no! This hasn't come I'm out yet. I'm saving my life. Just let's investigate that. I should go to known. James Corden for the true story on that one. I'm, I'm, spe- <laughs> I'm speaking to him later. I'm going to get the hot yeah, scoop. He's the one who invented this anyway, so it's all bullshit. <laughs> You were back flipping off a table, as you do, and she got in your way. <laughs> Ridiculous. I think we have to wrap it up. <laughs> Seems like a good yeah. moment. Thank- Segway to James. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank Mel. you. Real pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks. Thank For you me so much. Too. Thank you very much. Thank you. How was Meryl Streep feel? Meryl was, as you'd expect, a delight. Mm-hmm. She was a delight. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she had a cup of Builder's tea with two sugars. Two sugars? Maybe it was one sugar. Maybe I'm adding an extra sugar. Because this is the thing we've learned. If Meryl Streep has two sugars, maybe that's something not. I want to know about. Maybe not. Maybe just one. But anyway, she had sugar. And, and then she, she got us one too, because, you know, she's delightful like that. Yeah. Um, she was very charming indeed. This is great reporting. Yeah. Meryl Streep maybe had two sugars. I can't be sure. <laughs> Do you want the hard stuff? I can give you the hard... It's all in the, it's all in the interview there, isn't it? Yeah. All the tough questioning that it's we all subjected there. her to. Were you overawed by the fact that it's Meryl Streep? Was she overawed by the fact that she was on this show? There was a bit, there was, yeah, there was a bit of, everyone was a bit overawed in that room, I have to say, but we especially. There's not many people you interview where you are a bit like, holy crap, it's them. Um, she certainly is one of them. Because she is, you know, I asked her about her, before we started the interview, I asked her about who her kind of great screen idol was. And she talked um, at length about Carol Lombard and, and what a fan she was of, of her work and how she'd been a big influence on her career. Um, but she stands in that company, you know. She's one of the all-time greats. And so, yeah, being in a room with her and interviewing her is kind of like, it's kind of a moment. And two sugars, or possibly one. So that's... that's there you go. Should, well, that's the big news. We should do more careful reporting of, of people's tea drinking habits. I do. Evangeline microwaved her tea in the Empire Kitchen. That was quite exciting. Eesh, really? Yeah. Wasn't it coffee? No, it was tea. It was so, tea. It was tea. It was tea. Wow. Yeah. There it is. We're bringing you all the hot tea-based... News here in the Empire Podcast. Uh, speaking of news, and uh, speaking of Merrill, and uh, speaking of Oscars, uh, the Oscar nominations were announced yesterday. They announced all, I think it's 31 categories. It sounds like 31. It felt like 31 categories at the same time, which meant that I, my fingers were very, very sore because we were trying to live tweet it. And you would get a comment, you know, you'd get a, a category like best documentary short and you'd miss the opening one and you just, you couldn't recover that. So yeah, you, you have to be very, you know, specific about which ones you wanted to use. Hopefully it had a half-time break. And then, uh, yeah. and then Alfonso Cuarón came out, came back out in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So initially, it was JJ Abrams and uh, Alfonso Cuarón yeah. who announced essentially the, the the techie stuff. Although they dropped the first big bombshell, didn't they? The first big bombshell was that uh, the Lego Movie didn't get nominated in Best Animated Feature, at which point uh, Twitter became Spartacus and uh, made a big show of solidarity with uh, with Chris Miller and and Phil Lord. Everything is awkward. Everything is awkward. So, what, what's your take on the Oscars? Gents, first of all, uh, let's start with the Lego movie. And this snub, as if somehow 6,500 people, the, the body of footers at the Academy, get into a room and go, mm, oh, we're going to snub the Lego movie. But it doesn't quite work out that way. But No. I think the two, interesting, the two major outrages of the nominations were the Lego movie and Selma, at sort of completely opposite ends of the, uh, of the spectrum in terms of uh, you know, the kind of films they are. But uh, yeah, I think the Lego movie people were, have a lot of love for and that love has built and built and continued to build um, for, for Lord and Miller's movie. And so yeah, a lot of disappointment that it didn't make it because it seemed to be one of, those, one of those animations that caters for adults as well. And uh, well, who are the other, other nominees in that category? Well, how to, train your dra- how to Train Your Dragon 2 made it in there. Yeah, Big Hero Six made it in there, and the uh, yeah. the tale of Princess Kaguya made it in there. There was uh, it was some interesting little choices. Yeah, uh, Box Trolls was in there as well. Twas. I really like the Box Trolls a lot. Um, mm. I look, I thought Lego Movie's great. I don't know, I don't feel totally devastated about mm. that one, but yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I'll be honest, I have yet to see the Lego movie, so I can't really comment. I do think it's a real shame that uh, Lord Miller won't be able to tell people they're bricking it on Oscar night. But other than that, uh, I couldn't really say. 
Of course, uh, it was made worse for the Lego movie by the fact that uh, the very first nomination revealed yesterday was the fact that Everything is Awesome was is up for best original song, yeah. which it should, it won't, but it should win by a landslide. Um, and then you think, oh, wow, okay, get the best animated feature. And then the, the category finishes and you kind of go, mm. there's something missing from that category. Selma's really weird for me. It got a best picture nomination and... Uh, I expected at the very least David Oyelowo to get a Best Actor nomination for playing Martin Luther King in that film. He's phenomenal in that movie. Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of strange though. The movie itself is very powerful, but it's kind of perfunctorily directed. I would say we'll, we'll discuss it in a in a few weeks' time. Uh, so I can understand why I didn't get nominated in Best Director, but Oyelowo's omission is a big shock for me. I understand there was a snafu with sending out the screener discs. Yeah, uh, that the guilds didn't get them. Um, I believe that's the case, and that being the case, they didn't. It didn't really register with the guilds, with the PGA and the DGA, the Directors Guild, and that may have probably would have affected its chances quite severely. Um, but yeah, David Oyelowo is is a he's fantastic in that movie, and that's a really big big omission, I would say, and I would definitely have had him in there. The biggest winner, I guess, in terms of the number of nominations, Grand Budapest, which is delightful really to see because it's not a film that necessarily you'd imagine as a great Oscar classic, likely winner. But, um, you know, it's picked up a lot of categories, a lot of categories in the acting, but not Ray Fiennes. Not Ray Fiennes, no. Uh, not no. Ray Fiennes, which I think is, is disappointing because I think he's fantastic in that film, doing something really difficult, you know, being sort of balancing comedy and drama and pathos. Mm. And uh, I think he deserved the nomination potentially as well. He can only have like five, I gather, so that might be tricky to squeeze them all in. It seems strange that they, they, they stretch the rules of nomination. They just seem to make up every year how many films they nominate for Best Picture. Last year it was nine. Mm. One year we had ten. This year it's eight. Yeah. Uh, why can't they stretch it into other categories? I know that they're worried about the show overrunning into next year, but uh, why not? Ray Fiennes is fantastic. And I just... One of the problems a lot of people were criticizing the Oscar nominations yesterday and the fact the Oscar race and the fact that we get this sort of, you know, homogenized Oscar movie that comes out towards the end of the year where, the, you know, they're all almost undeniably great movies. Some aren't. Uh, but, you, you know, they're all of a similar ilk. They're mm. all cut from the same cloth. There's not a lot of light and shade in, in Oscar movies. Uh, they're all really, really intense dramas, or really, really worthy comedy dramas, like in the in the in the, in the shape of Birdman or the Grand Budapest Hotel, which which is a comedy that sort of morphs, doesn't it, as it goes along? Um, you know, and the, the the Academy never recognizes outright comedies; it never recognizes excellence in other arenas. And I just feel you get this this sort of sameness at the end of the year. I had a thought on the expanding the best actors category. You know, when they do the reaction shots when they're about to list out the name, mm. it would if they had like more nominations, it would look too much like the Brady Bunch credits. Have <laughs> <laughs> like, and they could all look at each other. Do you remember Celebrity Squares? Yeah, vaguely. They should, they should do it like that. So they should actually have the nominees on like a giant <laughs> set where they sit on top of each other and they can climb into each other's boxes. So and they can duke it out if they get nominated or if they if someone loses out. So instead of Sam Jackson mouthing shit to the camera <laughs> as he lost, when he lost for Pulp Fiction. Eddie Redmayne could just, climb into yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch's box. And they could they could have at each other, which I, I imagine Duke it is, out. Yeah, they could duke it out. Which yes. I imagine is the basis of, of much fan fiction. Uh, <laughs> I think so. I think the Oscars but, needs it needs a bit of something. But you know, you know what I mean? It needs a bit of pizzazz. It mm. needs a, not necessarily star quality because you, know, you can't really quibble with the five people who've been nominated and best actor. Well, let's focus on best actor for the time being. You can't really quibble with it, but I kind of like it when the Oscars goes a little bit. Like I know people now think that the character and the actor have, have fallen into self-parody, but when Johnny Depp was first nominated for, for Jack Sparrow... Uh, in the first parts of the Caribbean, what a breath of fresh air that was. I mean, this was a performance that was completely different from everything you see normally in, in Oscar movies, uh, you know, or in the Oscar nominations. And I, I would like to see something like that again, a performance that almost relies as much on old-style movie star charisma and just a general wacko-ness that, that you know, I, I don't think this year's crop has really thrown up. I'd be fascinated to know the sort of thought process that goes into voting for these things because I often find that when people take quizzes or, or questionnaires, surveys, and whatnot, that they don't necessarily answer what they believe is the best or what they believe to be true. They answer what they believe they should be seen to be voting for. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's all about perception. Like I feel I should be voting for American Sniper because it's Clint Eastwood. You know, I feel I should be doing this. You know, or, or, or how much of it is simply, oh, I'm friends with this person. But yeah, it's, it's, it is very interesting. And you're right. The, the sense of worthiness is like, oh... 
well, the movie I enjoyed most last year, this this is not me thinking, but you know, maybe an Academy photo. The movie I enjoyed most last year might have been Guardians of the Galaxy, but I feel if I voted for something like that, that would be mm. that would be bad. Mm. So I, I'm going to vote for the Theory of Everything. Yes, that's a nice, worthy movie. I yeah, I interviewed an Academy member this very day, and he he was adamant that they that it was all locked anyway for in in two categories he mentioned. I think you reach a point where you sort of know what's going to win and that we've probably reached that point now. We have, haven't we? And this, um, this has changed so much from previous years because now so many people, so many Oscar prognosticators make their living predicting this sort of stuff. And uh, so generally speaking, it takes all the mystery out of it. For example, you know, the, I've read so many websites now saying best actress, done. Julianne Moore, still Alice, not a great film, but she's great in it. Also, it's her year. She deserves it. Long overdue. And so, yeah, everyone else... Might as well not bother turning up. Really, kind of takes a, it takes a fun out of it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think they should they should do like maybe just vote on the night. They should go to the cop and say who do you think it should be, and then you press like can't Buzzer. cook, won't cook. You have green apples and green <laughs> green peppers and red tomatoes. So you have to put a different vegetable for each actor or actress. Well, Britain's Got Talent. Where they yeah, come, they come on stage and they have to recreate their performance, and they get buzzed off if they're not good enough. Or you turn your chair on. Everyone turns their chair. <gasps> They I could, don't know how that would work logistically. They could it? take advice from a lot of these shows. Like, what's everyone you said? Julianne Moore, our survey said. <laughs> <laughs> that film sounds boring. <laughs> yeah, there's so many things they could do. We should, I just, we should get involved, really, because there's, be there's been some stinkers in recent years. Um, not mentioning Seth MacFarlane personally by name. <laughs> but yeah, there's been some bad... I don't know, you're right. It has become a thing. It's become almost a sort of a brand perception exercise for Hollywood where it kind of recalibrates what it stands for and it stands for things that move issues forward, which is a little bit why it's weird that Selma hasn't been really fettered across the board. Mm. Why people aren't actually... You know, why they need to have screeners sent to them, why they don't just get up and go and see it because this is a film that's about something that's really, really, really germane to what's happening in America right now. You think it's exactly the sort of film that would be sweeping the border at another Oscars. Yeah. Even though I agree, to an extent, it's slightly pedestrian in some ways. It doesn't have that Spielberg-y flourish. Mm. Um, it's got lots of great things in it. And yeah. it's, it's a little kind of against the grain that, they've, that they haven't given it more attention, I would say. Um, so, and I do think there's a few experimental movies that are getting recognised. I mean, Boyhood's super experimental. Birdman, equally. Mm. Um, they're getting recognised, so I think that's encouraging. A, yeah. uh, Grand Budapest, likewise. Um, imitation games probably the most conventional I would say okay plenty of time in the Oscars we'll be we'll have loads of time a few weeks from now to discuss it we'll be doing an Oscar special an adult sleep adult sleep deprived Oscar special on the night after the Oscars we usually go into our little little pod booth and record something that's always fun let's move on to something else now this is the the news that Tom Hardy has dropped out of Suicide Squad he's been suicided yes he has he's fallen on a grenade and everyone else in the room has blown up Top secret style. Oh, no. <laughs> That's not good. That I know, no, there's been no violence. Oh, okay. He's just, it's a scheduling thing. Um, he is involved in Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu's The Revenant. You're about to correct my pronunciation, I can tell. I was going to say he's now G, isn't he? Oh, he's G. Alejandro okay. G Inuritu. Ali G. Um, he's in The Revenant <laughs> and it's extended its shoot so he can't make it. So it's not, a, it's not a script issue or anything like that. It's just a simple scheduling issue. Um, so they now need a new member of the team. And yet... They have mooted Jake Gyllenhaal. Indeed. Yeah, so Jake Gyllenhaal, who again was perhaps unfortunate to be to not get a Best Actor nod for Nightcrawler, mm-hmm. may be uh, consoled by a presence in a big new DC franchise. Well, maybe he's thinking if you if you want to win a lottery, you got to earn the money to buy a ticket, uh, and you can you can earn the money by appearing in a big big film. Like that's this. quite clever, but yeah, I yeah. like. Well done. That's yeah. cute. Do you like that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. It got a bit stretched towards the end, but it was really good. Along. <laughs> I enjoyed the beginning of the journey. It was a torturous analogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, what do you mean by that, Chris? Well, I, uh, well, I, I could go into it, but uh, what I mean is that uh, he has avoided, Jake Gyllenhaal has, has largely uh, avoided the big, big blockbusters uh, the day after tomorrow, I guess, but he hasn't really popped up in something like this. And we were talking about this this morning mm. about how, as an actor, if you're looking for a big franchise, that really your limit your 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 choices are becoming more and more limited. If you're looking, if you're, if you're thinking, okay, right, I haven't done a big big movie. I should probably do a Marvel movie. I'll do a Marvel movie. Why not? Uh, any parts going in the Marvel universe? No, the most of them have been cast already. Okie dokie. Uh, Star Wars. Oh no, that's all sewn up so far. Uh, maybe Episode Eight. But okay, yeah, DC. That looks good. Great cast. Still Will Smith. Still Jared Leto. Still you know Cara Delevingne. Margot Robbie. Chai Courtney. Uh, one of these things is not like the other. 
good director. You know, it looks guaranteed to be a big hit. Yeah. It's one of those situations where Warner Brothers have gone, okay, the name of this thing, Suicide Squad, isn't that well known, but if you will recognize these guys, you will recognize Will Smith, mm. still probably the biggest movie star on the planet. You will recognize Jared Leto, former Oscar winner. You will go to see it because it is the Joker. You know, and uh, so Jake Gyllenhaal might be going, yeah, director I like. Yeah. Yeah, why not? It's an exciting cast, that still. Even, you know, even if Gyllenhaal doesn't sign it, it's still got a lot of reasons to get excited about it. And, uh, the fact that Gyllenhaal worked with David Ayer on End of Watch, Fantastic obviously, Ayer. is probably his maybe his his entry, the thing that, that got him to make the leap into a um, into a comic book universe. But he hasn't signed up yet, so it may be premature. Uh, also today in comic book news, uh, comic book movie news, uh, the Russo brothers, the directors of uh, Captain America: Civil War, have confirmed that Scarlett Johansson will be back in that movie as uh, Natasha Romanoff, aka Black Widow. So that that film is at the moment. Yeah, you know, it's 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 straining, isn't it? It's it's bursting at the seams with with people. It, it's almost like another Avengers movie in itself. So it's already got Captain America, it's got Robert Downey Jr., it's Tony Stark, it's got Black Widow in it. We know that Chadwick Boseman will probably make his debut unless he pops up late in Avengers as uh, as Black Panther. It's got Anthony Mackie as the Falcon. It has Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes, aka the Winter Soldier. It's 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 loaded. Are we going to find out what Natasha Romanoff's shadowy backstory is finally? Do you think in this one? I think we'll. Because we'll, I can't wait. I think we'll get hints of it in uh, Age of Ultron. I think we we've saw. had hints of it. I want to know what it is. Well, I don't know. Well, come I'm on, not Chris. Joss Whedon. You've got a hotline to the to the Whedon camp, though, haven't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll yeah. just I'll just well, call, call him, him. Shall I? Bloody hell! Oh no, wait, that's my wife. No, that didn't go through. Call didn't go through. Call, yeah. <laughs> call rejected yeah. from your wife. I will just keep pretending to be a PPI thing. He'll he'll pick up eventually. Uh, I think that's interesting. Yeah. What's interesting is that uh, Marvel obviously have confirmed that a lot of people are going to be around post Age of Ultron. And I'm wondering what that means for the people that they haven't confirmed are going to be around post Age of Ultron so far. So we know that Stark, Thor has his own movie in 2017, Captain America and mm-hmm. Iron Man are taking it out next year. Black Widow will be in that movie as well. Uh, you know, mm. Strangely, Frankie, no announcement of Hawkeye Origins. No announcement of Hawkeye Origins, you know, and you was, but you know, I'm not saying that necessarily that he's he's odds on to be bumped off in uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron. I'm still I'm still not sure that Marvel will kill off any of their major characters, but uh, it's certainly it's interesting, isn't it? It's an interesting counterpoint to what you were saying about actors standing at the dock and and and, and hoping to board the last superhero ship out of here, you know, before it's too late. Because Jeremy Renner might be looking back and thinking perhaps he 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 may not have wanted to take that role he's swimming to shore is what you're saying I think I don't know is that am I speaking I am know. I speaking out of turn I just I mean I don't want to put words in his mouth well, but but there was certainly has not been any dramatic meat to that character whatsoever yeah, it was it was almost hobbit dwarf levels of sort of ill-defined ill-defined screen presence you would think right and whenever I was uh, yeah here we go name drop but when I was on set of uh, Avengers Age of Ultron um, Downey said that Hawkeye was Central to the plot this time, and had things to do, and and Renner seemed to, Renner certainly backed that up. So, uh, so I don't know. Maybe there is something in the character this time. You know, last time he was he was possessed and turned into Loki's henchman, and you know, towards the end of the movie, got a couple of cool things to do. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that that character has necessarily fulfilled Jeremy Renner's needs at this moment in time. He's, I mean, he's the most thinly drawn of all of them. I think even Agent Coulson, <laughs> prior to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., had more characterization than, than Hawkeye did. So you do feel quite bad for the man. <laughs> You're right. We know that Coulson collects baseball cards. Yeah. What, is, what does Hawkeye do? I don't know. Gets yeah. taken over by aliens. What? Yeah. Yeah. It's not fair, really, is it? No, it's not. Yeah. Well, we shall see. We shall see what happens. Uh, anything else in the movie news front? Well, I've got 28 things for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> see where I'm going with this. Uh, they have announced the potential possibility for another 28 film. So we've had 28 days later, we've had 28 weeks later. Can you guess what the next film might be? 28 years later. Close. 28, 28 months later. A month later. 28 months later. This is Alex Garland, uh, who, while he's been talking about Ex Machina, which is excellent, uh, he has been telling people that he and Danny Boyle have an idea, a thought, an inkling, a gem uh, for what may be 28 months later. Uh, in fact, he was slightly tongue-in-cheek about it. He did say we could do 28 months later, we've got an idea. We could also do 28 years later, but he thought 28 decades was probably stretching it slightly. <laughs> Although I'd like to see that set in the future, the future of zombies, cyborg zombies in spaceships with jetpacks. That'd be interesting. <laughs> be amazing. Um, that, frankly, I'd really like to see this. I love 28 Days Later, as I think did most people. Um, I very much enjoyed 28 Weeks Later. Incredibly um, shocking 
film. Yes. You know, just un- unspeakably violent. In which, of um, course, our good friend Jeremy Renner gets... Uh, <laughs> possessed. Can I say it? Can I say it? Possessed by aliens. No, he doesn't. He gets... Uh, no. he gets um, yeah. He gets... I can't even say it. I won't spoil it. Oh, I shouldn't spoil it. He gets... Something happens. And it ends in a really tantalizing cliffhanger yes, as well. With zombies pouring out the channel tunnel. They're infected, James. Sorry, sorry. I should know that. I was on set 28 weeks later. Oh, were you? I was indeed, oh, yes. Okay. For the farmhouse sequence and then for the uh, the tube sequence, which was shot at Charing Cross in one of their disused tunnels. It was very spooky. Well, the tube sequence with Rose Byrne, that one. No, the, the, the fantastic tube sequence where they uh, they say, oh, let's pop down to Wembley Stadium. It takes them like five minutes walking down the Northern Line, which shows <laughs> a fantastic lack of understanding of the underground network. But nevertheless, for the sake of movies, uh, it, it worked. I'd love to see the London Underground Network actually adhere to the, the Hollywood version vision of it so you can get to Greenwich yeah. in two stops from wherever <laughs> Charing Cross. Yeah. And that'd be, that'd be interesting. My journey to work would be a lot quicker. Well, we, we talked about this uh, with John Cassar when he came in for 24 because there's a pile, pile where Jack gets on. I can't remember where he's going, but I think he ends up in Charing Cross. Uh, and one, one minute he's on one train and then it's a Northern Nine and then it's on its way to Morden. And you're like, hang on, what the hell is going on? He gets where he needs to go. And that's Phenomenal. The crossrail throws everyone out. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? It'd be a pretty shit film if he gets to the other end and his oyster car doesn't get him through the barrier. So the film's just like 15 <laughs> minutes of him queuing to get to get more credit on his card so he can get through. Top well, up top up montage. Top up montage. Well, that's my feeling about uh, Thor of the Dark World. He He's on the tube and then the next thing he's off the tube but Thor presumably doesn't carry cash or indeed an oyster card. So maybe the next film is about him being a fugitive. He does carry Mjolnir which you'd imagine would make short work of a ticket barrier. Well, just, it swipes. It has. It does swipe. <laughs> it swipes with some weight, yes. It's an yes. oyster hammer. Contactless chip and Con- pin technology. Yeah. Amazing. Contactless hammer. <laughs> Phenomenal. Got another story um, quickly. Okay, very quick. Yeah. Um, that's David Fincher, the Gone Girl team. All of them, everyone. But especially David Fincher, um, Ben Affleck, and Gillian Flynn, the, the Gone Girl writer and screenwriter. Gillian. Gillian, Gillian I, don't, I can't always get that wrong. Gillian Flynn, I apologise, um, have re, are reuniting to remake uh, Steven Spielberg's Strangers on a Train, and they're calling it Strangers. Um, and it's set around Oscar season with an actor, played by Ben Affleck, uh, a bit meta, um, on his private jet, breaks down, or whatever the equivalent would be for a jet, and he gets a lift with a strange, mysterious guy, as yet uncast, who'd be playing the Robert Walker character, of course, from the movie. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Things get shadowy and Faustian from there. Some kind of dodgy pat with the devil takes place, and I think people probably have seen the original, but I'm sure there'll be enough of Fincher twist to make it fresh and interesting. That's cool, and it's it's happening fairly quickly, isn't it? Because Ben Affleck doesn't have a lot of room in his schedule, given that he is one of the people who signed up on the superhero boat, and he's got tons of Justice League stuff to do and Batman stuff to do over the next few years. And true, true, he's yeah. a busy man. Uh, is it going to be awardsy? I'd love the idea of him playing an Oscar-winning actor on the Oscar campaign trail, having to go on the Oscar campaign trail in a private jet with a uh, some sort of mechanical flaw. Um, it would certainly be interesting, wouldn't it? No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't be <laughs> no. interesting at all. I'll You've pitched the worst film in the world. Oh dear, let's oh, not like let that, that happen. I like that idea. Anyway, so that sounds like it might be quite. I don't know. I, I, you know, remakes. Why not? If there's a fresh voice and a fresh look, and, and Hitchcock himself obviously never had a problem. He remade himself. He, I don't think he would have an issue with this. So I'm not. I'm not super possessive about that one. And that is it for the movie news. Of course, this week's Empire Podcast is brought to you in association with Squarespace. And now to explain the science behind that, here's Ali Plum. Hello and welcome to the science bit of the Empire Podcast, where Ali, the editor, that's me, tells you a bit more about our sponsor, Squarespace, and how to make use of their free trial and discount deal. If you're not already in the know or missed Chris saying it earlier, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use our offer code EMPIRE. That's one word, EMPIRE. Here are a few more reasons why you might want to use Squarespace. For starters, Squarespace is very easy to use, as well as being user-friendly and doing all the tricky stuff for you. That's search engine optimization, hosting and making your site mobile, tablet, portable device friendly. For starters, they've also got a huge vault of pre-prepared designs and style options for you to be getting on with and then tweak to your taste. If you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name and you'll enjoy an on-hand support team working 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All for $8 a month. You'd have to change that into pounds, obviously, if you're from Britain. With, as mentioned earlier, a free trial and 10% off your first purchase with the Empire Podcast's very own offer code, Empire, via squarespace.com. Thank you for listening. Here is the rest of the show, which will seamlessly start again now.
Okay, our next guest is a brilliant young Swedish actress who is dazzled in the likes of a royal affair and Anna Karenina and can be seen twice this month in Testament of Youth, which is out this week, and Ex Machina, which is out next week. She is, of course, Alicia Fikander, and Phil and Ali went along to talk to her recently. Alicia Vikander is talking to us about Testament of Youth, which is out today. It's set immediately before and during the First World War, and it's based on the memoirs of Vera Britton, the great writer, nurse in the trenches, pacifist and feminist. Alicia Vikander plays the lead character alongside Kit Harrington and Taron Edgerton. Ali and I have both seen um, Testament of Youth and were, were very moved by it. And I was lucky enough to come and visit you on set in Smithfield, in the church in Smithfield. Um, and I just wondered what, like, you must have, well, you wrapped this not that long ago, I guess, in, in um, sort of, yeah, in, yeah, yeah, which is not that long between no. press and, and finishing the film for an actor, it's I know. Fresh, still. Yeah, so what's your relationship with, with Vera Britton, this character now? I've read the book only once, but I think, you know, apart from the book, is the book in one way, well, it was written by Vera in her early 30s. So it's a woman kind of looking back of her experiences during the war uh, when it came to reading the letters that she wrote between, you know, to her brothers and her family. And that was a material in the source that I think I used even more because that was the same voice. Everyone knows how much you change, and especially for this woman who went through a war and the trauma and the loss of all those people. It was, it was an, you know, a direct uh, emotional um, source, having the letters that she wrote during the war. Mm. And you also had a on-set... Vera Britton expert, a sort of encyclopedia yeah, Britannica. Mark, yes, exactly, who's um, lectured and written a lot of books about her. And then, of course, Shirley Williams, the daughter who I met. And actually, the, the you know, it, was, it meant a lot to for me to have the big part of the family actually came out when we were in Oxford. And, you know, I think it was quite daunting at first. And I think I was really, you know, nervous and scared throughout the filming process that you know that can i do justice to yeah. somebody that all those people actually knew it is quite a daunting role because i'm right in thinking she's never been brought to the screen before vera britain she she, i mean on tv but not yeah. on a feature film yeah. but she is a sort of a quintessential iconic kind of britain in, in yeah. no pun intended and that was one of the first thing when i walked up because i got invited to have tea at the house of lords yes <laughs> and i walked up there i was like Half shaking, sat down, and she was like, "Oh, so you're this Swedish girl playing my mother?" And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> um, "Like you said, yes. Um, I'm, 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 I'm very um, humble towards the fact that, you know, the the, the producers and James um, dared to give me a chance to play quite a you know, yeah. bit of a British icon. I think you'd need to sort of have prep before we went to tea at the House of Lords." In itself, that you need to like talk to someone to prepare for that experience because that seems a bit of a daunting thing. I've never done that, obviously, but there's a lot of what? security. Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> a lot of doors because because the First World War has such a kind of unique place in the in the British consciousness, especially this year, which is the the, the centenary. Yeah, and it's been continued to be that way with things like Blackadder goes forth. I don't. Did you ever have? Did you? Oh, what, I grew you, up with Blackadder too. Did actually, you? Even in Sweden. That's a big thing, yeah. Blackadder 2 is in Blackadder also rather than Blackadder 2, no, no, the no, one no, no. where he all, plays... Um, <laughs> all of them. Right. In one way, I've been lucky because during this year, I've been kind of had a big source of information, documentaries and things and, you know, a lot of books coming out. Mm. And so that's been quite helpful. During this yeah. Year. I love that Blackadder is a big thing in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, and now as soon as the Christmas, you know, edition will come out. Yeah. Every year. Oh, uh, the um, Christmas Carol. Yeah. Where he starts off good and becomes evil. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. There's a really important moment in a pond where you just oh. walk straight into it. That's murder. You're walking straight into an ice cold pond. Yeah. No, I, I watched it now because I, I missed the London Film Festival premiere, but I saw it while shooting in Australia, actually. Uh, uh, and I walked in and watched it, and I was like, because it was so cold. We kind of made a deal. And I was like, I only do two takes per scene because it was like nine degrees uh, or something. Yes. But I watched the first scene and I was like, I am actually smiling. Because when I did it, I was like, there's no way this is going to work. 
Because my, my face was just, you know, stuck in this one position and I, you know, I was so tense. Have you ever pedophilia before? Because oh. it could have been your, <laughs> your... Yeah, it could. And we talked about that. I've, I've felt a bit like a feeler walking. If you've been working with Kubrick, it may have ended that way for you. <laughs> 78 takes later. Another tough scene. I mean, all of the scenes at the Atapals, the, because, because Vera Britain starts off so kind, she's just, she, she fights hard to get to Oxford in the first place, and then the war breaks out, and then all of her loved ones, including her fiancé, um, end up going off to fight. And she wants to become part of that and becomes a nurse and ends up just behind the front lines but in Etapos, which is the sort of casualty station. And it's James Kent, the director, doesn't really mess around with those scenes. They're very hard to watch. Yeah, they're very, I think you need Were they to hard be. to film as well? Yeah, we had a 360 set, which actually helps. We only had like a handheld camera and a camera or, and um, sound boom. And that was about it in those uh, huts. So, um, and we had... Some amazing extras. We had about 25 amputees. Really? People who, who just, some boys that had come back from war just like within the last 18 months without wow. legs and arms. And I mean, to hear their stories was, you know, just a realization of whatever this situation could have been like. And it was, they, they brought a lot to the film and to our shoot. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So we had the same group of guys kind of staying with us for one and a half week. Wow. I didn't realize that. That must have been somber. Yeah. In every, in every moment. Yeah. There's a shot where she walks out of the hut and across the rain soaked field, which is just covered in stretchers. Yeah. Which was that a deliberate reference to the shot in Gone with the Wind? I wonders. It felt I, I like think it. it. Yeah, I think it's been a lot of men, you know men, people have mentioned that, and of course, I didn't really see it in the same. No. It's also CGI work. Oh, okay. But I, you know, I, I, yeah, I think we did talk about it. You know. We must all want to be able to like. Can we do a rom com or something <laughs> <laughs> at some point? Maybe next year. We were we were saying walking down here for the interview. This is just going to be a non-stop laugh riot. I mean, it's <laughs> well, it's tough stuff. There's but, no way this won't be yeah. chuckle filled. But don't let anyone be put off because there's there there are moments of loveliness and, and comedy but I mean it is tough tough material so now you're an expert on like the first world war the beginnings of sort of feminism in this country you can speak Danish a bit from the royal affair you can catch your own crayfish yeah you're, you're building up a sort of a, and you were a dancer obviously way back when you're building up an impressive portfolio of like transferable skills yeah it's quite a, well you never really get good at anything but you get to try things you need to <laughs> pretend that you're good at it do you, what about Ex Machina, your Alex Garland movie? Yeah. What, what did you pick up from that? Apart from you know playing a robot, obviously. The so. Robot dance, obviously. Be Ro able to be like covering latex in uh, really yeah. hot degrees for several hours a day. That's on the I CV. don't know. <laughs> uh, being able to sit in makeup and not move for four and a half hours every morning. No, it was um, four and a half hours of makeup. Yeah, Eesh. my pickup was like three ten a.m. It was, you that, you that had was just stay awesome. awake during that process. Well. I, I couldn't, but it was really difficult because my head, you know, started to like drift yeah. off to different sides and he couldn't really do his job um, properly. So we, because um, the headrest was too big to go to uh, um, a big part of my neck, so he couldn't really f finish putting all my mm. prosthetics on. So we found this, he started off with the neck furthest back, and then we found this little stick with a rubber ball on top that we put on the back of my chair so I could rest my head on this tiny little ball. <laughs> And I actually fell asleep on that every really? morning. Yeah, I thought it was really smart. <laughs> <laughs> I just be sitting there drooling. And I then think. I woke up and I was bald. Oh, yeah, that must be weird. Yeah, it was pretty weird. That moment of like, wait, <laughs> you don't know where you are. I, and you you're know, like, that's the thing when you wear that because you forget that you're in that. And mm. then you go to the canteen or you go to the cafe to get a coffee and be just <laughs> Every time jump. you look in the mirror, you're like, what the hell? It's me. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's pretty strange. Did you were you were you shooting that when Donald Gleason um, and Oscar Isaac were cast for Star Wars? I know you no. can't. No, that was before that. Before that, okay. it was just after. I was going to say, do you have that thing where you're on everyone set with got people? a part in Star Wars except me? Yeah, were you were in you, the film? <laughs> you out back when the Star Wars people came out. <laughs> you could all have a part in the film. Where's Alicia? Oh, it's too late. She's gone for the day. Was there any difficulty with your character in The Man From U.N.C.L.E.? There's no walking into a pond, there's no massive makeup in there, is there? But then it was the fact that I, you know, I 
trying out, you know, I wanted to go up for the part and I got the part to play this car mechanic and then I did not tell them until I got the part that I don't have a driver's license and I can't drive. Ah, oh, well played. Well played. <laughs> well played, that one. So I kind of had to learn a bit of that. <laughs> learn a bit of driving. <laughs> I'll just do a bit. How much, which bits did you learn? <laughs> not the braking. Well, in one the... way, I, 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 you know, they... Um, it was a manual. It was, um, and I, I, I got to learn how to drive in like a s- old sixties uh, Trabant car. So mm. I really had to use my own muscles every time I, you know, turned. So then getting in a, you know, new car was really easy. Yeah. So I learned some, but then I mean, it, I, I have this Larry's picture, uh, picture still on my phone. I think because it's a car chase uh, that I kind of lead. And I, and I, you know, I couldn't drive properly. So we had a man in a cage on top of the car driving it with wires leading through, all the way down through the car. So I sat in the car pretending that I was, was driving and felt like I did all those crazy cool shit happening. Like yeah. all the 180s and stuff. <laughs> it's me, it's all me. Please Good editing. Be in, yes. Was. You need to be in the next Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> <laughs> that has to happen. Yeah, I told because the guy who was driving had just finished. He was so good. He was he just came from one of the oh, had he? Yeah, Fast and the Furious. I think he should take you back for the next one. Yeah, you see, that's yet another period film. You seem to be always put into a different time period. And I know Phil was kind of joking with like a rom com, but it, when was the last time you did something now? I guess Son of a Gun is Son of a Gun is uh, Ex Machina is now. It's now. Yeah. Now. Yeah. It's now in an Apple store, but it's not now for everyone else. Quite. It's sort of futuristic, isn't it? Yes. Sort of. Sort of. But te- contemporaneous. It happen tomorrow. Um, <laughs> back into makeup. Um, we have to let you go, I think. Right about now, before we do, can you teach us one Danish phrase to go away? What, do, you, do you remember a Danish phrase from, uh, from a royal affair? Something we always say in Sweden in, and pretend we're saying it in Danish. And then you come there and no Danish people say it. It's for helvede. And that's a very, it sounds so harsh and it's like for fuck's sake. And it's just funny that Swedish people use that a lot, making fun of the Danes, but apparently they don't even use it. The Danes have no idea what you're so, saying. So I came and like wanted to connect and said that a lot. Just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really awkward. Next time I hear someone's watching the bridge, I'll say that and they'll go, what? What? Yeah, I mean, it's weird with the bridge because all the Danes and the Swedes speak their own languages and they all get each other. Yeah, it's so... And no we even, even even we have subtitled yeah. when watching it. But the people on screen apparently seem to know exactly what they're talking about. They're all very well educated. Anyway, thank you so much. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. For, um... <laughs> that was fun. The lovely and talented Alicia... Oh, that sounded sleazy, doesn't it? I can't, I can't say that without sounding sleazy. The lovely and talented Alicia Vikander. She's very, she's very, very talented actress and she's going to go very far. And it's interesting, Meryl Streep, who's, you know, at the established end of the spectrum, and Alicia Vikander could, you know, could yet go on that kind of, uh, that kind of journey. We'll see. Indeed. Okay, on now to the reviews section. Let's start with Whiplash, which is Damien Chazelle's uh, Oscar-nominated movie, which pits a young wannabe drummer Miles Teller against J.K. Simmons' tyrannical teacher in a movie that only could be billed as Mr. Fantastic versus J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, frankly, they're missing a the trick. Exactly. Mm. I build it as full metal dinner jacket. <laughs> so, yeah, there are other options available for pointless, <laughs> for pointless yep. rebrandings. Uh, it's a really, really, really excellent film, Whiplash. We've given it five stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, it deserves every single one of them. Um, it's, at its core, a... It's a character drama, um, almost a character thriller, I would say, between these two, Miles Teller, very uh, talented young actor, and J.K. Simmons, who's finally getting a really meaty, decent part, got Oscar nominated for it, of course, and he goes for the jugular in that in this role, and Miles Teller's jugular is the one in question as this drummer, this young protege going to a sort of Juilliard-style boiler room um, music academy, he has this sense of entitlement, he's got this talent that he wants to, he wants to live up to. He wants um, to be one of the greats, doesn't he? He wants, he wants to be one to of be, the greats, yeah. yeah. He, he's, he's got great ambition. Some of the best scenes in this movie, aside from the J.K. Simmons bits, are between Teller and his dad, um, Paul Reiser, mm-hmm. um, who is a sort of mild, rather meek man who mm-hmm. wants the best for his son and loves him, but really doesn't know quite, he's like a hot potato, he's not quite sure how to deal with this young kid who's, fiery and determined 
and is basically being brutalised and psychologically dismantled in a sort of full metal jacket style by J.K. Simmons, a character. And some phenomenal scenes between the two of them. You know, he's physically abusive as well as mentally, emotionally. Every single kind of box is ticked in the bullying handbook. And uh, so it's it's an interesting film about, you know, the balance between talent and genius and the idea that actually there's no such thing as someone that's born a genius. You have to really strive and work for it. And J.K. Simmons' instructor is, is determined to eat this out. He doesn't give a shit about the man that surrounds the talent. He just cares to get to the talent. And how he does it is almost surgical. And mm-hmm. it's really fascinating. And Damon Giselle is a young filmmaker. Um, he, he, he interestingly narrows the focus from a slightly broader canvas down to just the two of them. So by the end of the movie, it's really just these two guys mm. in this massive battle of wills. Um, don't want to say too much more than that, really. It's five stars all the way, and I would recommend seeing it as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Uh, Whiplash, nominated for Best Picture, and uh, rightly so. Uh, also nominated for Best Picture was uh, Clint Eastwood's American Sniper, which is the true life tale of Chris Kyle, who was the U.S. Army's deadliest sniper. He's played the movie by Bradley Cooper. Jimbo, what did you think of this one? Um, yeah, this is actually quite a welcome re- return to form for for Eastwood, actually, after a, a slightly bumpy patch, I think, in the form of, of the likes of Jersey Boys and, and J. Edgar hereafter, and, and, and even really Invictus, I think. Um, but he comes back with this very well. I mean, it starts with a phenomenally difficult sequence where you see uh, Chief Petty Officer Chris Kyle uh, played with an astonishing amount of muscle uh, by Bradley Cooper uh, on a rooftop, sort of sighting down his rifle at, uh, at a mother and her young son uh, who could, who may or may not be insurgents and decided whether or not to pull the trigger. Uh, and that sequence and how you respond to it, I think, to me, sum up the whole film. It's a film that tries very hard not to make moral judgments about warfare. Um, a lot's come out since the film, and indeed before it, the film is, is based on, on Carl's book called American Sniper, because he approaches war that America is very much the good guys, the Iraqis are very much the bad guys, and it's very clear-cut in his head. And the character in the film, I think, maintains that view all the way through. He's very, very black and white about it. He's a very, very sort of, you know, one-track mind character. And Eastwood doesn't judge him for that. He doesn't criticise him for that. He doesn't condone that particular point of view. He just presents the facts as they are. Uh, and I think that's more than anything else, is what really appealed to me about this film. It just presents war. War is a mess. You know, everyone thinks they're the good guy. The villain never realises they're the villain. Um, and even when he's racked up, I think it was 200-odd confirmed kills, Carl did as the most deadly sniper in US history, mm. uh, and earns himself the nickname a legend. Uh, and he's a guy who becomes, uh, I think, a self-professed war junkie. He signs up for a second tour, and then a third tour, and then a fourth tour. And I think by the end of it, has spent nearly four years in country during this conflict. And he's clearly suffering from shell shock, post-traumatic stress, um, and yet keeps going back for a sense of duty to his country, for a sense of you know fraternity with his with his other soldiers. And obviously, there's this other sniper out there, Mustafa, who's uh, the Iraqi sniper, his sort of counterpoint to this, uh, the Ed Harris to his Jude Law, if you will. And they're sort of battling out for the streets of uh, battling out for the streets of Iraq. Um, but I but I digress. I think you're absolutely right about what you said. I, he doesn't judge this character. He leaves the audience to do that. Um, and uh, uh, so it's not political. He's not trying to be political, but he's no. showing the impacts of war on the on the human psyche. And it is, it's a great performance by Cooper. He plays it very nicely as a, a sort of Texan, you know, rodeo guy who signs up and then joins the Navy SEALs after 9-11 gets deployed. Uh, but weirdly, I was more impressed by Sienna Miller. Sienna Miller, I've always thought, is very good, and I don't think she's ever received the credit she deserves as an actress. And in this film in particular, uh, she takes a role that could very easily have been, you know, her indoors as a sort of wife back home and turns it into a really sort of meaty, you know, meaty character. She's very much the sort of soul and conscience of this film. And she's the sort of the mirror by which I think uh, Carl has to, has to look at himself reflected in her eyes. The only thing that possibly lets her down is the terrifying sight of her animatronic baby, uh, which is honestly, it's the only thing about this film that never made any sense to me. Can't you get a real child to play your baby? They have this 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 doll which twitches its arms in a really quite upsetting way. Well, just a log, a small log. Yeah, a small log wrapped in a blanket really would have done a better job. That baby is perhaps the most terrifying. Carve thing a of this face year. into a bit of wood. But but scary, freakish, uncanny valley babies aside, uh, it's a very very good film. Do check it out. Um, it is as we I think described it as the hurt locker uh, for snipers. So <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, four stars then, four Empire stars for American Sniper. The other two films out this week are Wild, for which Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dermott nominated for Oscars yesterday, Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress respectively, and Testament of Youth, which of course stars Alicia Vikander. Phil. Yes. 
have had them. Yes, well, I mean, I don't want to be reductive, but there's one thing that these two films have in common, which is a very strong central female character. Um, Reese Witherspoon, in the case of Wilde, who plays Cheryl Strayed, who's a, a woman who wrote a book about trying to overcome her many personal demons by walking the Pacific Crest Trail alone with a massive rucksack. And a testament of youth in which Alicia Vikander, who we interviewed obviously earlier, plays Vera Britton, a, the, a very modern woman in Edwardian times whose life is turned upside down by the Great War. Both of them are fantastic in the roles. Of course, Reese Witherspoon is Oscar nominated for her, for her, for her role as uh, Strayed. And Alyssa Vikander, again, is equally good. They're both very sort of powerful, nuanced, layered characters. And, and, and the films around them, both interestingly, Jean-Marc Vallée in the, in the case of Wilde, who shot Dallas Buyers Club, um, and James Kent, who shot Testament of Youth, previously a do- documentary maker. The thing that's interesting about both these films is they're made by people who have a very sort of distinct aesthetic that stops them from being soapy. Um, Jean-Marc Vallée made Wild. He obviously made Dallas Buyers Club. This has got the same sort of slightly frayed around the edges, sort of fractured feel to it. And James Kent, who has a documentary background, who made Testament of Youth, equally doesn't go down the soapy kind of BBC polite route. This has got some teeth and some punch about it as well. Mm. Um, they're both four-star films, and I'd recommend them both, really. Mm. Different, very different movies, but um, but both equally worthy. Hence, yes, four stars for both Wild and Testament of Youth, four stars for American Sniper, and five stars for Whiplash. I make that a belting week at the movies. You won't miss out if you're going to see any of those. But Film of Week, definitely Whiplash. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Ethan Hawke, star of Boyhood, which may well now be the frontrunner to win Best Picture, and J.C. Chandor, director of the most excellent, overlooked, admittedly, but most excellent and most violent year. Until then, it's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from James. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to high five, Dickie Poop. See you next time. <laughs>